by the time Yolanda was seven years old, she'd received 30 operations and had been diagnosed with an incurable chronic illness. Authorities discovered that her mother had been poisoning her. Who does this? Why? Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest, Dr. Mark Feldman, is a psychiatrist and leading expert on medical deception, widely understood, widely misunderstood, and widely underdiagnosed. The American Psychological Association estimates that 100,000 people a year are hospitalized due to medical deception. Dr. Mark Feldman, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Dr. Feldman, what exactly is medical deception? Medical deception is a term that's been used more recently for behavior that's actually been known about for eons, and that is it refers to patients who feign, exaggerate, or actually self-induce illness because they covet the role of patient. That is, they like the attention and sympathy, the care, the concern that comes with either appearing to be ill or actually being ill. And so they may lie even to their family, their friends, and certainly to their doctors about the source of their illnesses. After all, they themselves are the source of the illness. They may have injected themselves with bacteria, they may simply be lying, they may have enacted a seizure, but they are the cause. And uh, deception may be woven throughout their whole life or just related to uh, illness. So it sounds like, you know, if, if folks are really good and, and folks who engage in this behavior, they are really good at, at uh, um, keeping the truth of what's going on uh, a secret. They really are good at deception. So how do you begin to tease out when you've got a patient in front of you who's claiming all sorts of illnesses, how do you begin to tease out what's real and what's not real? Well, as you suggested, I think the majority of cases are missed. That is, they're never detected as being deceptive. And the reason is that in medical school, and it's been a long time for me, but I went, and I can tell you that we focus on trying to turn over every stone to find out what the basis of a person's illness complaints is. Uh, it turns out, though, that uh, as you suggested, the American Psychiatric Association actually says about 1% of all patients admitted to general hospitals are lying about the illness they have or have induced it themselves. But I think in terms of the diagnostic hints, we have to look at whether the patient has been doctor shopping or hospital shopping, going from place to place, seeking more and more diagnoses and seeking to uh, mislead more doctors? Is the patient evasive about information, blocking access to outside information sources and medical records? Uh, does the patient uh, have normal tests despite claims of severe illness? And it goes on and on. Sometimes we find syringes or other implements in the hospital room that the patient has been using to induce illness. 
They may be unusually eager to have surgical procedures. Most people would want to avoid that. These patients sometimes seek them out and get disgruntled if no more surgery is being planned. So there are a number of hints, but doctors tend not to know what they are. They're just not taught about it in medical school. So it it sounds like you need to be a detective. Yeah, uh, and in fact, um, it, it isn't so much that they need to be detectives as they need to be aware of the phenomenon. And because it's not taught much, they don't know what to look for. So they do test after test after test, surgery after surgery, procedure after procedure, all uh, trying to find the cause of an illness that the patient, in fact, has created. So in in the case where a patient is having all kinds of procedures, is this a time that the fact of managed care is useful in that they're actually looking at all of the procedures that are going on with the patient? That's such an interesting question. You know, I used to work for a managed care operation and also worked for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Alabama. And they would sometimes bring cases to me that showed extreme medical utilization. As soon as the patient was discharged from one hospital, they would go to another with new complaints. And they would ask me, do you think this is an example of medical deception? And often I would say, yes, I think it really is. And they would say, thank you very much. We're not going to do anything about it. And I didn't understand that except that they fear negative publicity. These are patients who tend to contact their congressmen, uh, other government officials, the media, when their demands for care aren't met. And so uh, the managed care in other companies would rather just provide the care than face the negative publicity. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I actually worked for a managed care company uh, some time ago myself. I am certainly no fan of managed care, particularly when it uh, comes to the area of mental health, the provision of mental health uh, coverage and services, but it just seems to me that if there were a way to actually track the kinds of things that you're talking about, that it would clearly make more sense. And if you got, if you're able to track somebody's having, you know, five surgeries in five months, uh, maybe there's some backing to say, no, this really doesn't seem like an appropriate uh, thing for you to engage in at this time. This sixth surgery maybe doesn't seem like it might be useful, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, tell us about Munchausen syndrome. What is that? That is the most severe type of uh, what we call factitious disorder. It's like fictitious, but with an aid as the second letter, factitious disorder. That's the formal term known by the American Psychiatric Association for the kinds of medical deception we're talking about. But Munchausen syndrome is the most severe and chronic form in which people do get hospitalized repeatedly. They may travel not just from hospital to hospital, but literally from country to country seeking medical care. And they evolve a whole lifestyle centered around getting care, feigning illness, and undergoing surgery that they know they don't really need. 
And that's the term that uh, most of the public knows this behavior by, and it's one that I still use uh, when I'm talking to general audiences. And what is Munchausen's by proxy? That's similar, but Munchausen by proxy is really uh, perhaps better known these days as medical child abuse. It's where a caretaker, which is almost always the mother, sickens a child in her custody in order to get concern for herself. So it's a form of child abuse, but it may also be a mental disorder as well. The jury is still out on that. But I think we have to recognize first and foremost that it is a form of abuse, and when we recognize a child who's being victimized in this way, we need to contact Child Protective Services and, uh, and or the police. You also talk about, and this one was sort of a new one on me, uh, Munchausen's by Internet. What is that? Well, there are some people who don't want to go to the trouble of having to go to medical libraries, reading up about certain esoteric me- me- medical illnesses that they're going to fake, uh, and then having to go to the emergency room or doctor's offices and enact symptoms. They may not be very good actors. So they can do the same thing online. You know, if you go to some medical websites on the Internet, you can become an expert, near expert, in even esoteric medical ailments pretty quickly. These people then, after they've learned about it, go on to online support groups and social media and claim to have particular severe illnesses. And they mobilize a world of uh, attention and sympathy through doing that. Some people essentially put their lives on hold as they mete out sympathy and care and love to somebody who complains of having cystic fibrosis, or multiple sclerosis, or other illnesses uh, that, in fact, they really don't have. And that's why we call it Munchausen by Internet, because it takes place over the net. All right, so factitious disorder is the overarching diagnosis. The other things that we've been talking about are, are more specific types of factitious disorder. That's exactly right. Okay. And malingering, where does that fit into this, if at all? Well, malingering is not a mental illness, unlike the others, but it's a pattern of duplicitous, deceptive behavior where the person feigns or exaggerates illness with a goal of obtaining something tangible. So whereas the factitious disorder or Munchausen patient likes the attention and sympathy, the malingerer is after disability payments, uh, lawsuit proceeds, um, opioid medications, or may evade, use illness to evade criminal prosecution. So usually when you look at the malingerer, you can figure out, if you know about their life circumstance, why they're doing what they're doing. They have something tangible they can gain. Whereas with the factitious disorder patient, it's all psychological, and it may be very hard to determine what their motive is. You have referenced the American Psychiatric Association, and it really, again, struck me as being quite unusual uh, that you indicated 
that many advocacy groups, including NAMI, which is one that I have, you know, touted its its brilliance and and usefulness for many years, NAMI meaning National Alliance on Mental uh, Illness, you say that they don't they've shown little interest to quote you in the fact of factitious disorders in general or Munchausen's or what's why is there the, the, such the whole realm the whole realm there I, I think again there's a, been a lack of education about it I did write a book recently called Dying to be Ill which I'm, I intended not just for professionals but for the general public as, as well and the goal was to help the public, but also advocacy uh, organizations understand more about the importance of medical deception. It's not just a dirty little secret that we keep to ourselves. It is a mental disorder, except for malingering. And we need to show the advocacy to these patients that we show to those who have depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and other kinds of mental ailments. But I've written for example, to NAMI a couple of times and offered to help work with them to prepare brochures and other educational materials about medical deception and factitious disorder, and I never even got a response. So I think it's something they would rather sweep under the rug. Uh, And that's been disappointing, but I've been doing this work for 25 years, and I'm sort of used to that response to medical deception. Interesting. We are speaking with Dr. Mark D. Feldman, author uh, with Gregory P. Yates of Dying to Be Ill, True Stories of Medical Deception. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Feldman, I'd like for you to tell us the story of Matthew, uh, who was a lay preacher from Savannah, Georgia. Folks, we'll be right back. Dr. Feldman, tell us about uh, Matthew from Savannah, Georgia. Okay, the first thing I'll say is I used a pseudonym, so no one has to worry that I've disclosed his true identity, and I also did change the city in which he resides. But this is a case I know well because I was an expert witness um, in the case. Uh, Matthew was a lay preacher who um, actually had no training in being a preacher. His father was one, so he may have learned at the feet of his father, but he had no congregation. He had no pulpit. But he had a very poor job history. He would work at most jobs for a matter of a couple of days and then allege some sort of accident or injury that would prevent him from moving on and continuing on the job. Uh, He was also very litigious and had uh, launched lawsuits in the past. But what led to my involvement is he went to work for a chemical company for just half a day before he alleged a chemical exposure by a chemical called lime, which can cause respiratory distress in heavy doses. There was no real evidence to suggest he ever had that exposure, but nonetheless, he became more and more incapacitated over time and saw 
had hundreds of doctor's appointments and was prescribed dozens of medications by doctors who believed the story he was telling, that he had had a massive Lyme exposure. He ended up suing the company at which he had been so briefly employed. And uh, Matthew was a, a lay preacher without a congregation. Uh, he defined himself as a lay preacher who uh, had a very poor job history and alleged that at one of his jobs, he had had a massive chemical exposure that had impaired his lungs. Uh, there was no real evidence from coworkers and others to suggest he ever had that exposure, but this reflected a pattern he had of claiming that he couldn't continue on various jobs and that it was the fault of the employer, not himself, that his job history was so poor. He um, had hundreds of doctor's appointments and visits to the hospital uh, complaining of respiratory and lung symptoms, and doctors believed what he had to say, so they prescribed steroids and other medications, which he took, even though he knew that he was making up his symptoms, and they had massive side effects. He, uh, he grew morbidly obese and had other problems as a result of the steroids and other medications. He ended up suing the employer at which he alleged he had the exposure and uh, anticipated getting so much money from a lawsuit that he said he would use the money to completely stamp out hunger in Africa. Wow. He viewed it, yeah, he was anticipating a lot of money. And he also um, liked to present himself as a very noble character. On his psychological testing, in fact, he described himself as being more virtuous than priests and nuns. Uh, that's how clueless he was about his own behavior and his own history. He was also addicted to Lortab and other opioid medications and had bought them on the street and had engaged in various criminal activities to get them. And this was another way through malingering that he was able to get uh, more of the medications he desired. He, the lawsuit went to trial and it was pointed out there that he had Munchausen syndrome uh, as well as some malingering. That is, that he was being deceptive about his medical symptoms, and though he was morbidly obese and had other problems, those stemmed from his being deceptive to doctors, not from the occupational exposure, and he ended up getting no compensation as a result. He lost the case. I, I want to share a quote with the audience from uh, Dying to be Ill uh, that was given to you by a 14-year-old who you've named as Albert. And he said, I had no friends when I was sick with Munchausen's because that became my friend. Disease is your friend. It's your lover. It's your enemy. It's your mother. It's everything to you. That was really a powerful experience that Albert put in so few words. Yes, and that's why I was so sure to include it in the book. He, I, I had the pleasure of meeting him and talking to him. Uh, I was contacted by his mother, considering how young he was when he started this behavior, and we developed a relationship. Uh, he ultimately was confronted about faking asthma. He faked asthma so convincingly aboard an airliner that the airliner made an emergency landing 
uh, with the ambulances surrounding the plane, uh, he put blue eyeshadow on his lips to make it look like he was oxygen deprived. Wow. And uh, that's how much, how hungry he was for attention and sympathy and control. Uh, he ended up uh, doing very well as a result of antidepressant medication and psychotherapy and also enlarging his social group uh, such that being ill started to get in the way of things he wanted to do with his friends. And that was, he too had gained a massive amount of weight as a result of uh, steroids and uh, that he, he also took unnecessarily. And uh, he, he is a success story in so many ways uh, but that case stood out not only because he was so articulate, but because he was so young when he reached out for some help. So it, people might think that if a child is diagnosed with Munchausen's, that it's automatically going to be Munchausen's by proxy. But in Albert's situation, it was actually Munchausen syndrome. That's right. And only a minority of people who have Munchausen syndrome ever go on to engage in Munchausen by proxy. There is a big misunderstanding about that. The other point I'd make, though, considering his young age, is that uh, people don't have to be worried about the little boy, the little school student who complains about having a tummy ache to avoid going to school now and then, or even about the adult employee who needs some emotional R&R but can't get that. So instead, he or she calls the boss and says, I've got a cold. I, it may be turning into the flu. I need to take a day or two off from work. Don't be worried about that. The difference is that we call that the normal use of illness or benign illness behavior. And that's just something people do occasionally. It's not a pattern of behavior. Any gains they make are pretty minimal. Um, and so you don't need to worry that your little boy is going to become a full-blown Munchausen patient just because he clutches his belly from time to time on a Sunday evening and says, I don't think I can go to school tomorrow. So if I hear about that amazing sale next week on Thursday and I discover that I'm going to have a terrible stomachache on Thursday and it's a week earlier, I'm normal. Sort You're of. normal. Sort of. You, <laughs> yes. You can, you can breathe a sigh of relief. Okay. Sale, here I come. Folks, this is Pamela <laughs> Brewer, and you are listening to a conversation with Dr. Mark D. Feldman, uh, author of Dying to be Ill, True Stories of Medical Deception. We will return in just a moment. Stay right where you are. Dr. Feldman, we've been talking about parent when in the in the matter of Munchausen by proxy, uh, parents being uh, the the underlying issue here. 
What about um, medical professionals? Is there ever a concern about medical abuse by a medical professional? Yes, there is. That's a very insightful question. There are some people who study what we call hospital epidemics of Munchausen by proxy. And there are some famous cases. They seem especially to be in the United Kingdom, but they involve nurses in particular who sicken or actually kill patients for whom they're caring, often through an injection of some unnecessary or problematic medication. And they seem to do it because they like the feeling of control, of mastery. They like the attention they get. Uh, they like running codes. They like being part of the action. Uh, in the United Kingdom, there's the case of Beverly Allitt, A-L-L-I-T-T, who not, not only had a history of Munchausen syndrome herself, but may have killed up to 13 children for whom she cared, and she's serving a life sentence now uh, in the U.K. And there are dozens and dozens of these cases all over the world and they really can be conceptualized as serial Munchausen by proxy cases that culminate in murder. That's pretty unnerving. Is there any, but you, it's, it's not that common. Oh, no, it isn't. Uh, the researcher who's best known for her work in this area has been accumulating cases for 30 years. Okay. And uh, uh, it, it's not as if there are numerous cases arising every year. I wouldn't want people to go into hospitals and get scared exactly. that they're likely to get one of these nurses. It's very rare. Right. Good. Okay. Thank you. For yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? I mean, you've indicated that in part you've written uh, the book dying to be ill because you wanted to educate people, um, you know, from a broad range of society. A at the end of the day, how will you know that you have been successful in the creation of dying to, Ill, uh, dying to be ill, that you've been able to accomplish what you chose, what you wished for? Well, I've been working, as I mentioned, at this field for over 25 years now, I encountered my first Munchausen patient in 1989, which certainly dates me. Uh, but I, I see things getting better and better and better. When I use the word Munchausen, most people have at least heard of it, and that wasn't true when I started. They may not be exactly sure what it means, but they've heard the term. And now Munchausen by proxy is generally known, uh, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that there are so many uh, TV movies and even theatrical releases that have covered the subject of Munchausen by proxy. There's even an HBO show called Sharp Objects right now that deals with Munchausen by proxy. Uh, and uh, people are becoming aware as a result. I'm often contacted as these programs are in development, and it lets me know that my books are having the outreach. I hope they would. Dr. Mark Feldman, author of Dying to be Ill, this has been such a fascinating conversation. And, of course, everything that you write is really extraordinarily well-researched and certainly interesting. Tell us where folks can get information about what you're doing and about Dying to be Ill. Well, I've just revamped my Medical Deception Resources website, and people can learn a lot about medical deception by visiting dyingtobeill.com. So it's the title of the book, .com, 
dyingtobeill.com. And they can also email me through the website and ask any questions that might occur to them. I get about uh, 300 emails a year through the website and respond to every single one. So people can rest assured that if they tell me their story, I will weigh in. I may be limited in what I can say because I don't know them, but I will respond. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. And folks, thank you for joining me on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a mental health, medical health, or other professional. You can always listen to Mind Talk on demand by going to mindtalk.org. I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening today, so email me. Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A, at mindtalk.org. Mindtalk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. And once again, send me an email, Pamela, at M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. Remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable.